and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. We're two and a half years into the pandemic and the latest stats show that around one in 17 Britons had COVID last week. Will this virus ever go away? Joining me today to talk COVID is Tom Chivers, science writer at the iPaper. Welcome to The Bunker, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was thinking of the people I know who haven't had COVID, and I can count them on one hand now. Nearly everyone has some immunity to the virus now through infection or vaccination or both, and yet we're still catching it again and again. Why is that? Fundamentally, your body builds up immunity through various things. It's got antibodies, which remember a small bit of the virus or whatever that is attacking you, and they remember it really well, and they stop you from getting infected. The virus doesn't have to change very much to be able to avoid antibody immunity to some extent. So so as new variants of it come along, the antibody immunity wanes relatively quickly. It doesn't go away completely, but it wanes a bit. However, you also have another kind of immunity, which is called your T-cell immunity. It doesn't stop you from getting infected, but what it does is it remembers much more of what the virus looks like. When the virus does get into your system, it makes you much better at fighting it off. So... What you will find with viruses like COVID, which change relatively quickly, what you'll find is that your antibody immunity wanes, so people are susceptible to repeat infections, but those infections are significantly less deadly. That's what people are talking about when they say vaccines or prior infection are only somewhat effective against reinfection, but they're very effective against protecting you against severe disease and death. While we're not comparing COVID to a cold, it is behaving like a cold does, or rather the cold virus in general does, because we expect to get it again and again, and it changes rapidly, so we can't stop ourselves getting it. So at the moment, we can't stop ourselves getting it. There, there might be, you know, I, I would knock on wood if I wasn't on the radio and it would probably interfere with the mic. It may be that in the next year or so, and I think there are good signs of this, we will find means of producing multivalent vaccines or pan-coronavirus variants that are that are vaccines that are effective against all coronavirus variants, that would be much more effective at stopping us from getting a disease at all because these new variants would be less effective. That may happen. For the moment, yes, what is the most likely outcome is we still get the virus periodically, but our body gets better and better at knowing how to fight it off and it will become part of our background immunity uh, in the same way that people get colds and they're not very nice but each of those colds was presumably at some point in history a devastating novel pandemic (laughs) you know the 1918 flu virus is still circulating as far as i know but everyone develops antibodies to it and uh, and t-cells you know uh, immunity to it early in life and gets it through their mother's milk and all these things and so we, we we get the flu still and it's really unpleasant but It's not something that we have to reshape our entire public health and health services to deal with because it's just part of what our bodies are used to. Quite a few epidemiologists predicted this would be a cyclical virus with the worst waves in the winter, just like colds and flu, in fact. Why hasn't that happened? Well, give it time. We've only had two winters. Um, It may do. It may not. We, we, uh, you know, this, this is the first time we've really watched a new virus arise and become a pandemic and spread around with the tools that we have you know we, we know with the last even in 2009 or whatever whenever it was that swine flu arose and i know there's a bit of a damp squib people think but it was you know or when sars and mers came around in the early 2000 early 2000s we didn't have the ability to do rapid testing in the same way we do now we didn't have gene sequencing we couldn't watch how the the disease behaved in the same way we can now and certainly not in 1918 right there wasn't any gene sequencing in 1918 certainly one hypothesis that someone raised with me is that basically 
once we have developed the immunity that we will presumably get at some point, and once it becomes part of our sort of background immunity like all the other ones, then it will become more cyclical, more, more because at the moment, flu struggles to spread because we've got so much immunity. It struggles to spread in the summer because it needs the spreading advantages of, of the winter when we're all huddled together all the time. And we're, well, I think it's, I think it's mainly from Bill being in, in rooms together all the time, whereas in the summer, there's more... Um, where more space, you know, out in the out in the sunshine and the fresh air, so it's harder for the disease to spread. I think that I, sh- I should say there's a lot of confusion over exactly why viruses are cyclical. The best guess at the moment is we've only had what winter 2020, winter 2021 so far, and maybe by winter 2025 or winter 2030, it will just be part of the cycle when it's as as reliant as other coronaviruses and flu viruses on the spreading advantages of winter whereas now it's just it's just really quite good at spreading still so it can get around even in the summer and and that's my best guess my understanding of other people's best guesses at least we're now on to the ba5 variant of omicron it all sounds a bit like flights to the us doesn't it Mm. but there are signs that ba2 is resurgent it's been dubbed ba2.75 sort of sub sub variant uh, some people are calling it Centaurus. I'm not sure why. What do we know about BA 2.75 and how it's different from BA 5? Well, okay. So uh, I also lose track somewhat of the various variants. So I'll try and give you my understanding of all of them. You know, if you can imagine a family tree, all the, all these BA whatevers are literal descendants of the first variant of Omicron in the same way that I am the descendant of my great-grandfather it's a little more complicated with viruses because they can swap genes around in between you know horizontal transfer of genes as well as vertical but that's basically it whereas all the other ones they were on separate evolutionary trees and they weren't related to each other they were all related well except that they were related to, to the original wuhan flu we don't know if any of them are inherently better at spreading if you dropped ba 2.75 into a, an immune you know a completely uh, immunologically naive population that hadn't had covid at all we don't know whether it would be better or worse, particularly at spreading than the original Wuhan flu. I think I think there is some indication that it would be better, but the most of the difference is that it has slightly evolved to be able to evade our immune responses somewhat, and that's what will keep happening: is that we we become immune to the previous variant fairly effectively, and then the next one that comes around will look better than that one because we are all slightly immune to that one. I don't think there's anything magical or special about any of these new variants that comes along. I don't think any of them are especially new and deadly. They're just, each time they are forced by the fact that everyone in the population has some level of immunity to all the previous variants, they are forced to change a bit to find some way of getting past that. And that that will keep happening. And there'll be, again, slightly speculating here, but this is from speaking to other people, it'll become harder and harder for them to do that and there'll be less space for them to evolve into and that will end up eventually that we just get get it it ends up in the background it is true that we've got a slightly different world now than we had you know that's definitely what happened in previous viruses and maybe it's a bit different now because we've got a world with antivirals and vaccines and maybe the evolutionary pressures are different and we have a much larger immunocompromised population than we ever did and there's quite a lot of evidence that the new variants tend to arise in immunocompromised people because they the, the virus can stay in them for a long time, neither being wiped out nor killing the person. So, and that's where the, where the new variants tend to arise. So, it may be that there is some reason to think that these variants will continue to arise like this and, and never quite become background. But I think the, the sort of consensus position is we in five or ten years we will see it just being part of the background. One of the things that happened as a result of lockdowns and people not mixing as much as they usually do last 
Christmas last winter was that very few people got flu compared to normal winters in the UK. What is that going to mean for this winter? Do we have an idea of what impact that is going to have on flu in the coming in the months? With the caveat, of course, that I haven't got a crystal ball. And more than that, the people who I'm ripping this, this, this information off didn't have crystal balls either. But there is, I think, reasonably good reason to think that it'll be a bad flu season. The canary in the coal mine, as, as someone described it to me, or I'm not sure the metaphor quite works, is Australia. Our flu season tends to follow Australia's. They, you know, it's their winter now, and they're having their flu season. And there's a theoretical reason, which is we've got two years of our antibodies to flu being reduced, and we've got two years of new flu variants presumably arising mutating and therefore the, the the flu variants we'll be seeing will be somewhat more different so will be less immune to them i i, I think i'm right about that but we you'd, I'm, I'm, you'd have to check with a proper scientist we'll be lucky to escape a pretty bad flu season on top of what seems likely to be fairly prevalent covid hi i'm katie riley on the slow newscast from tortoise Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. All over 50s are being offered boosters this autumn and immunocompromised and uh, other vulnerable people too. Some say that isn't enough. Independent Sage in particular wants free lateral flow tests back. For example, it wants ventilation in schools. It wants government recommendations to wear masks uh, indoors if the pandemic reaches a certain level. Would these measures help? Can the NHS afford them because we know how much was spent on test and trace does it make sense to carry on or to bring lateral flow tests back i have to say like if i'm a little bit um impolitic here and say i can't stand independent sage they were right quite a lot by accident in the early years of the pandemic because they stamped a we are not doing enough stamp on absolutely everything and that was true in the early months but then later on they're continuing to use that same stamp and not bothering to change where the where you know look at the evidence and see what, what how the situation has changed. I may be being unfair. So whether or not lateral flow lateral flow tests, of course, they'll help. I mean, of course, they'll do non-zero good in helping people be aware of whether they have COVID and re- and reduce you know then hopefully reduce their up. The question is whether they would be cost effective because now we're all vaccinated. Even the ones who aren't vaccinated, as we've said, have almost all of us have had have had the disease. It is just much less likely to cause severe disease and death in the population. If you look at, you know, we've had this huge wave, gigantic wave, very, you know, re, uh, in the last few, like, it's, I think it's coming down now quite quickly, but in the last couple of weeks, we've had this gigantic record-breaking wave. And the numbers of people in hospitals and dying has gone up a bit. Uh, you know, every death is a tragedy, and I, I don't want to un- overstate that, but it is not as though we're facing anything like we were before. The sheer cost, you know, you're talking about the cost of test and trace. People say, you know, we waste a load of money on test and trace, but they don't realize that the huge, overwhelming majority of that 37 billion, which was actually, that was the amount budgeted. It wasn't the amount they actually spent. 
most of it was on the tests themselves, which most of us would agree were helpful, but it was they are expensive things. Billions every month, and hence we end up with you know, this, this huge amount. The benefit you would get from them would be much less now. That's just It would definitely be much less because we are less vulnerable to the disease. The equation has changed enormously since lateral flow tests were of huge value earlier in the pandemic. And it would be surprising to me if they were still valuable. I, I might be completely wrong, but you'd have, you'd have to run the numbers on it. Boosters, on the other hand, it strikes me as, you know, we're going to need to do them forever. The, the only, or at least for the, for the coming time, uh, few years, and I suspect do, do them for, as, you know, as part of the vaccination round in children as we go into the future. The, the only thing I will say about that, and I think is a, which does make me feel guilty, and I don't know, but I don't know how you get round it, is that every jab, every fifth jab that's, you know, fourth and fifth jab that's going into the arms of a 62-year-old in Kent isn't a first jab that's going into the arms of someone in sub-Saharan Africa, which would probably do more good. Politically, it, that's impossible to sell, and it's you know the the job of the UK government is to look after the to UK people. So I don't I don't know how you can change that. The boosters are obviously a good idea. Lateral flow tests might be a good idea, but I, I just think the numbers have changed so much since the, since we used them the first time that it would not surprise me at all if they would be not cost effective now. Last week, I was talking to a friend who used to sing in a choir with someone who's immunocompromised. This person still feels unable to live a normal life because she's so afraid of catching COVID. They have not reconvened the choir because they don't want to do it without her and she doesn't feel able to take that risk. Can we do anything for people like her? So it's a really complicated situation. Well, firstly, I think there are a lot of people who worry too much about... I don't I don't know this person's situation. I'd like, so, so perhaps she's just genuinely at enormous risk if she gets COVID. And I don't want to underplay that because it could well be really dangerous for her so is there anything we can do for people like her i mean we could go into lockdown for this so let's imagine that the, she there's some subset of people for whom covid is really dangerous right and it remains so despite vaccinations and prior immunity and, and everything and and remember paxlovid and the other antivirals which are immensely effective we've got amazingly powerful tools against it now so but there's probably still a subset who are genuinely still at risk if that's the case, what you can do is introduce non-pharmaceutical interventions. So mandatory masking, lockdowns, work from home, closed schools. You can do these things, but they come at a cost for the population at large, which is a non-trivial cost. Even asking how many millions of people to wear masks on the tube, it sounds trivial, but it's quite a big deal, asking millions and millions of people to change their lives for the sake of a small number of people. Again, this is a cost-benefit analysis. This is, do we think the costs, to, the small costs to many are worth the large gains to a few? I don't know. If you look at uh, to the 1918 flu again, you see that flu deaths were just raised above the baseline for 10 or 15, even 20 years after the first initial wave. So people were at higher risk. More vulnerable people were at higher risk for a long time. Now, fundamentally, those people have to, be, have to judge their own level of risk comfort the rest of the population has to make decisions about how much they are willing to impose on the lives of healthy, low-risk people to protect the high risk. And it's not the case that one death is too many. That is false, right? We would not want to shut down the entire UK population's activity to prevent one death. We are happy as a population and as individuals with some degree of risk, and we have to admit that there are trade-offs here. That is cold-sounding, I know, but it is nonetheless it is just in- inherent in the idea of, of, of what we're doing. I also think there's still a lot of people who misjudge how dangerous COVID is to them now 
with vaccination protection, with Paxlovid and other antivirals, I think we are in a really strong position to protect people. And monoclonal antibodies, another one that are really effective in immunocompromised people. So I would tell people in that situation to, of course, to, to make their own decisions about the risk that they're comfortable with, but to be sure that they are dealing with the risk as it actually is and not sort of remembering the risk from March 2020 or something like that, because it has changed an awful lot, including for immunocompromised people. Lastly, long COVID. What do we know about what causes it so far? Clearly, it is a phenomenon. We don't, it does exist. We don't know because it's very hard to tell how long and how badly people are suffering symptoms because we have quite bad ways of measuring that. Well, not bad, but quite approximate ways of measuring it. But have we found out anything about what is causing it and therefore what might be used to treat it? I think there's an awful lot of speculation. I'm not at the cutting edge of the science. The thing is with long COVID that that gets really complicated is that a lot of the time we lump together. You see these really scary numbers like one in five people end up with long COVID. But what they're doing there is using the numbers for people who still have a symptom, at least one symptom, four weeks after the after they initially contract the disease, which is quite a lot of, you know, a lot of people felt still wheezy after four weeks or something like that. And they're using that number with the sort of popular image of long COVID, which is someone 18 months after getting the disease still being having fatigue and brain fog and inexplicable joint pains and can't get out of bed and all this sort of stuff. You know, we are conflating the numbers for this not very nice but manageable and common thing with the numbers of this rare and extraordinarily horrible thing and saying, and therefore, you know, if you if you get COVID, there's a one in five chance you'll have this. So that's not the case. What causes it? I, I think we are just at the beginning of understanding how viruses interact with an awful lot of things. We know recently that the Epstein-Barr virus was shown to be linked to multiple sclerosis. We're just starting to learn that various viruses interact in complicated ways with our body. The uh, human papillomavirus is linked to um, cancers. I think there's a lot of other th- sort of suggestions of how viruses can cause these cancers and autoimmune diseases long, a long way down the line, and we don't know a great deal about it. So I feel like the answer is no, we don't know what's causing it. There are various hypotheses. Uh, it seems to overlap a lot with chronic fatigue syndrome and what exactly that is. So we may find out more in the coming months, but at the moment, we don't know. learned from this pandemic about what not to do, how not to react. Big mistakes have been made by different people at different organisations at different times. What is the overwhelming thing that you would take from this experience? I've got this great big boiling mass of thoughts, right? And I'm trying to condense them into sort of one fundamental idea. But I think the fundamental idea is, as public health bodies and medical establishments, in emergency situations, we need to they need to st- learn to react not like they do in the rest of the time. The rest of the time, for good reasons, the medical establishment needs good evidence for, you know, we're not going to let you use this new cancer drug until you've got a, a phase three randomized control trial in uh, 10,000 patients and you show this much effectiveness and all sort of stuff. And at the beginning of the pandemic, they couldn't get out of that mindset. There's no good randomized control trials that show that masks work. So it's so Jenny Harris gets up on stage and says, actually, you know, the evidence shows masks doesn't work for people. And so, and even they couldn't, they could even make it worse. So we're not going to recommend it. That was the wrong way of thinking in an emergency situation. The, the correct way of thinking was there's good theoretical reason that it might work. 
there's not good RCTs because it's hard to do an RCT without you know making a surgeon go into a surgery without a, a mask on, which is unethical. So it's, it's hard to do these RCTs. And the actual cost of putting masks on compared to the cost of someone getting COVID and dying is relatively low. You have to you make a lot of people wear a mask to prevent one fatal case of COVID, but the the cost of each individual mask is so low that you have the, the the bet is worth making. So you need to be more nimble in thinking about what is likely to be effective, what is a low cost intervention that you're happy to use, and you need to be willing to update your position more rapidly. I mean, I'm still seeing. It was really not that long ago that you're still seeing government advice to wash your hands. And washing your hands is basically irrelevant in this situation. You can't wait for good evidence. You have to work with the best evidence you have. And sometimes you get it wrong and you have to pivot away from it. And, and, and that'll mean a certain amount of saying, we got it wrong last time. Here's what we do now. A willingness to act with less good information and then change your mind quickly when, as you get more information was the real mistake we made. Tom Chivers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's bunker, do consider backing us on Patreon. It costs from £2 a month, which is less than the price of a cup of coffee. And you'll help us make more great podcasts. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>